Welcome to Pete's Soup. I'm your host, Jim McCarthy. In this episode, we're going to focus on abdominal pain. For me, abdominal pain is always a tough complaint to manage. The vast majority of the time, it's nothing too concerning, but when there really is something going on, it can get really bad really quickly. It's a huge topic, so we won't go too far in depth on any one diagnosis, but we'll hit the highlights for practice and board exams. The big sources we're going to draw from here are a few Peds and Review articles, one from 2018 by Robert Baker and another published by Paul E. Hyman in 2016. But as always, we'll go down any interesting rabbit holes we find along the way. We'll start with acute abdominal pain, since it's more likely to be something serious and more likely to show up on an exam. Kids get a lot of stomach aches. A 2007 study published by Vera Lowingbauk and Alexander Swidinski reviewed outpatient visits from 962 kids between 4 and 18 years old and found that 9% had at least one visit for acute abdominal pain, and that's just the kids whose parents brought them to the doctor. There's a huge differential diagnosis for acute abdominal pain, and like anything, it's best to start with a good history and exam and an idea of what the most common and most serious potential causes are. Constipation is common across all age groups. It accounted for 48% of the cases in that study I just mentioned, and generally gets better without needing anything too invasive. Viral illnesses, gastroenteritis, and urinary tract infections are also on the list of common, but not too serious, causes for abdominal pain. Looking at some of the more serious causes, you should think about foreign body ingestions for any patient who's old enough to put something in his mouth, but not old enough, or mature enough, to know what he shouldn't swallow. The hospital where I trained had one patient who was a famous swallower, everything from necklaces to toothbrushes to batteries. His x-rays are pretty impressive, but unfortunately this is an audio-only podcast, so we'll have to move on. What needs to be done for foreign bodies depends on what it is and how far down the GI tract it's gotten. Anything sharp, toothpicks, pins, things like that, is obviously going to need to be removed. Batteries should also generally be removed to avoid the acid inside leaking and causing even more damage. Swallowed coins, beads, and other non-sharp, non-toxic things can be scary and require an intervention if they get stuck in the esophagus, but once they make it to the stomach, odds are they're going to come out the other end. The last kind of foreign body to mention is magnets. They're interesting, and they always seem to come up in board review. Management of a magnet ingestion is based on what exactly was swallowed. If there's only one magnet, a lot of times it can be treated like any other foreign body where you wait for it to pass unless there are signs of an obstruction. If there are two magnets, or if there's something metallic along with the magnet, somebody needs to go in and get them out of there. Anytime you see two magnets swallowed on a test or in practice, the answer is always to call GI, surgery, or both. When magnets connect, Pieces of bowel can get trapped in between and cause tissue breakdown and fistula formation, which leads to all kinds of other problems. Remember those tiny little toy magnets, the one that look like little beads? They were actually banned in the U.S. for a few years because of the ingestion risk and have been under fairly strict rules for safety and marketing since it became legal to sell them again. Foreign body ingestions take a high index of suspicion and a low threshold for getting an x-ray because the patients are usually too young to tell you anything and if the parent had seen everything that happened, they might have been able to stop the thing from being swallowed in the first place. For a lot of other causes of acute abdominal pain, a detailed history and exam will be your best tools. 
You do the usual things, trying to find out when the pain started, what makes it better, what makes it worse, but fine-tune it for the GI system. Does the pain change with eating or pooping? If there's vomiting, does your patient feel some relief after they throw up? It's also always important to ask about bowel movements and passing gas. If a patient has severe abdominal pain and nothing at all is coming out the back end, you should treat them as a bowel obstruction until proven otherwise. Buzzwords in history are common on tests, and they'll almost have to give you some for questions about abdominal pain, but you'd be surprised how often you'll hear them when you're actually talking to a patient. I don't know anybody who's heard a parent say current jelly stools for a kid with intussusception, but they will tell you the poop is red and looks like jelly or jam, along with a story of severe pain that comes and goes. Green vomit, not yellow-green, not green-tinged, but really green vomit, has a lot of bile in it and could be a sign of obstruction, especially in younger kids and infants. If your patient is trying to stay as still as possible and her pain gets worse anytime she moves, that's a sign of peritoneal irritation or peritonitis, which makes you think about things like pelvic inflammatory disease and, most importantly in pediatrics, appendicitis. Appendicitis is one abdominal pain diagnosis that actually has some good evidence behind it, and it should since it's the most common abdominal surgical emergency in pediatrics. Ultrasound and CT scans have led to a huge improvement in how appendicitis is diagnosed, which means fewer surgeries. Ali Raja and his colleagues published a study in the journal Radiology in 2010 where they reviewed adult patients coming from the emergency room over a four-year period just before diagnostic CT scans became common and in a four-year period starting 10 years after CT scans got popular. They found that the rate of negative appendectomy, an appendix being taken out and then turning out to be normal on pathology, dropped from 23% to 1.7% and that the total number of appendectomies per year dropped by 45%. Over the same time period, the percentage of patients who had a CT scan before their operation went from 1% to 97.5%. Getting CT scans for 97.5% of pediatric patients isn't ideal for all sorts of reasons, so how do we decide who to image? Most hospitals use the Pediatric Appendicitis Score, a 10-point scoring system that was developed by Madan Samuel and published in 2002. The scale is based off of a prospective cohort study of over 1,000 patients between 4 and 15 years old who presented with abdominal pain and uses 8 different clinical and lab variables to determine how likely a patient is to have appendicitis. You get 2 points for right lower quadrant tenderness with cough, percussion, or hopping, which are all signs of peritonitis, 2 points for tenderness over the right lower quadrant, and one point each for refusal to eat, fever over 100.4 degrees, nausea or vomiting, a white blood cell count over 10,000, an absolute neutrophil count over 7,500, and migration of pain to the right lower quadrant. A score of 3 or less means that appendicitis is unlikely, a score of 7 or higher means you should call the surgeons right away, and anybody in that 4 to 6 range is a candidate for imaging to clarify the diagnosis. The details can vary from hospital to hospital, but most places start with an ultrasound and only move to CT if there isn't a definitive yes or no decision after ultrasound and evaluation by the surgical team. So Holly Shah and colleagues published a study of an algorithm like this one in a 2016 edition of the Annals of Surgery and found that it had a sensitivity of 98.6% and a specificity of 94.4% for diagnosing appendicitis. 
Best of all, after implementing the algorithm, the percentage of patients who got CT scans before their appendectomy dropped from 75.4% to just 24.2%. We'll touch on a few other specific diagnoses before we move on to a little bit about chronic abdominal pain. We mentioned intussusception earlier, which all pediatricians know as the thing they're never sure if they're spelling correctly. In intussusception, the bowel telescopes onto itself, folding into its own lumen. If you want to have even more technical terms to misspell, the intussusceptum telescopes into the intussuscepens. This leads to venous and lymphatic obstruction that can progress to bowel ischemia and perforation, so it's something that needs to be addressed sooner than later. Clinically, the classic triad is intermittent severe abdominal pain, a sausage-shaped abdominal mass, and current jelly stools. And like most classic constellations, it's pretty rare to see a patient with all the symptoms at once. Ultrasound is the diagnostic test of choice. You'll see a target-shaped area where the bowel is folded into itself. And once the diagnosis is made, you treat with an enema using air, contrast, or saline to push things back to where they should be. Surgery is an option, but only as a last resort after at least three tries at non-surgical reduction. Mesenteric lymphadenitis is a diagnosis that's seen more and more frequently, probably because we're more likely to do abdominal imaging that shows the inflamed lymph nodes that we didn't know about in the past. It's exactly what it sounds like. The lymph nodes in the mesentery, that connective tissue around the bowel, become inflamed and it can be caused by just about anything from gastroenteritis to inflammatory bowel disease to viral illnesses and even lymphoma. The inflammation can be painful and decrease the patient's appetite, but unless there are red flags like weight loss, symptoms lasting longer than a month, or other systemic symptoms, management is all supportive with hydration and pain management. Malrotation and volvulus are also worth knowing about because it's another surgical emergency. First, a little background. When the GI tract is growing in utero, the intestines actually grow outside the abdominal cavity through the umbilical cord. As it grows, the bowel twists and turns before it works its way back into the abdomen. Malrotation is what happens when the turns don't go quite the way they're supposed to, and the patient ends up with their bowels in the wrong place. Typically, the small intestine is mainly on the right side of the abdomen, the cecum is in the area just below the sternum, the connective tissues stretch across the intestine rather than sitting behind it, and the small intestine has a more narrow base than normal. All of these abnormalities predispose the patient to bowel obstruction, and most importantly, volvulus. Volvulus is a surgical emergency that happens when a loop of intestine twists around itself and the mesentery that supports it, causing obstruction and ischemia. You can have volvulus without malrotation, but at least on tests, you typically see the two together. It's important to get the surgeons involved immediately because the patient can go from the first signs of obstruction to outright necrotic bowel in just a few hours. Finally, there's constipation. Constipation is the most frequently identified cause for acute abdominal pain in kids. Although when you dig a little deeper, you'll often find that there's been some discomfort for a long time and that it's just gotten worse in the last few days. There are a ton of potential causes, with a diet low in fiber and water being high on the list here in the U.S., although functional constipation is the most common reason. The Rome 3 definition for functional constipation is pretty detailed and assesses stool characteristics, the amount of straining, sensation of incomplete emptying, and a few other aspects, 
but a simplified definition of infrequent passage of hard, uncomfortable stools that are distressing to the child works just as well to make a diagnosis. We'll get into more details about constipation, diarrhea, and poop in general in another episode, but for now, know that the frontline treatment for constipation is osmotic laxatives like Miralax, along with dietary adjustments. We'll wrap this episode up with chronic and recurrent abdominal pain. There isn't a lot of solid evidence on the topic, which means it's not too likely to come up on an exam, but chances are you're going to see more than a few cases in practice. Chronic abdominal pain is typically defined as pain that happens four times a month or more for at least two months, and the history is where you're most likely to get the information that helps make some decisions. We always want to rule out serious and life-threatening diagnoses, and episodes of pain that last less than five minutes and pain that's closer to the belly button are generally less likely to be anything pathological. Getting a detailed description of symptoms is especially important because almost all conditions that cause chronic abdominal pain have symptom-based diagnostic criteria. Chronic abdominal pain can be even harder to manage than acute pain because the symptoms are real for the patient even if we can't find anything to fix. Problems like this are classified as functional disorders. The patient has symptoms that are distressing, but there isn't any easily identified pathology to explain what's going on. One of the best analogies I've seen for functional disorders is shivering when you're cold. If you're cold enough to shiver, it's not a pleasant experience, but your body is doing exactly what it's supposed to in that situation. For patients with functional abdominal pain, the idea is that it's something similar. Their body is probably doing mostly normal things, but they've gotten to where they interpret those normal sensations as something uncomfortable and distressing. How that happens is actually pretty interesting from a basic science standpoint. Sensory nerves can become sensitized to normal stimuli and interpret them as abnormal, sending a pain signal to the brain. That signal can be amplified in the deep brain arousal centers, and if it's strong enough, we perceive it as pain. That response can be counteracted by the frontal lobe tamping down the pain signals, sort of a combination conscious-subconscious mechanism for lessening the sensation of pain. What's interesting is that patients with past pain experiences, poor coping skills, anxiety, and depression, and patients who catastrophize their symptoms or become hopeless don't have that same frontal lobe response and in some cases can even have increased pain transmission. There is a ton of variability in how functional disorders are treated, and the success is just as variable. The most important first step is to establish a good relationship with the patient and family before you ask them to accept a diagnosis of a functional problem. If you bring it up too soon, they're going to think you're dismissing the symptoms and head off to find another doctor who's going to finally get to the bottom of things. You need to reassure everyone involved that you believe the pain is real, but also that abdominal pain without serious illness is much more common than abdominal pain with a serious illness and that you're going to do what's medically necessary to separate the two. There aren't actually any FDA-approved medications for pediatric abdominal pain. You should avoid narcotics, aspirin, and NSAIDs as much as possible to avoid making things worse in the long run. Acid suppressors like PPIs and H2 blockers are commonly prescribed, but literature shows that the improvement rates are similar to placebo. That's not necessarily a knock on acid suppression. In randomized controlled trials for functional abdominal pain, placebo usually comes in at around a 40% response rate, 
so there's a pretty high bar to clear for a medication to have a statistically significant advantage. As you might have guessed from the brain-gut connection we talked about, there is some emerging evidence for non-pharmacologic treatment. Cognitive behavioral therapy and even hypnosis have had some success. Juliette Rutten and her colleagues published a review article in Pediatrics in 2015 that covered 24 different randomized control trials with a total of 1,390 patients with functional abdominal pain. Three studies evaluated hypnotherapy and at least 55% of patients in each trial responded to hypnosis, compared to at best 27% with standard therapy. Cognitive behavioral therapy, which we more commonly associate with things like anxiety and phobias, has also had generally positive results. When you're dealing with abdominal pain, whether it's acute or chronic, the single most important thing is to get a good history and let that be your guide. Diet changes, bowel habits, growth charts, everything related to the GI tract has the potential to help you. Keep an eye out for red flag symptoms like weight loss, blood or bile where it shouldn't be, growth delays, and signs of bowel obstruction or appendicitis. Labs have fairly limited utility, and unless you're worried about a surgical problem, imaging should usually start with an ultrasound to avoid radiation exposure or the need for sedation. Once you've ruled out acute surgical causes, pain control, ideally with Tylenol since opioids and NSAIDs can cause more problems than they solve, and maintaining hydration are the most important aspects of care while you work to find an underlying cause. Thanks for listening. If you like this episode, give us a rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you found us. If you have any feedback or suggestions for future episodes, you can email me at pedsoup, that's P-E-D-S-S-O-U-P at gmail.com. I'm Jim McCarthy, and we'll be back next time with more Peds Soup.